we are here to talk about the Dead Poets Society session on two massively under-celebrated or under-familiar giants of world literature. Um, whilst we are happy to talk about Shakespeare and T.S. Eliot and find new ways of thinking about them, part of this project is also to recover and to celebrate people whom we want to share. And I am shamed into saying that until Tishani and Mena suggested our two subjects for today, I had never, I want to say never read, but it's much worse than that, I had actually never even heard of these two people who now feel absolutely thrilling to me. And we're going to talk about each of them for about 25 minutes and then invite questions. Uh, and I am delighted to say that both Mena and Tishani are going to read some of their work, because I don't know how many of you are also familiar with them, but it sounds beautiful. We're going to be hearing translations because we're talking about work that was written in Kashmiri, and I will discuss what Kashmiri means in a second, and in, um, and in Welsh. So we'll hear it in English, and I'm hoping that, Mena, you would also read some fractions or two in, in Welsh as well, if you would. Um, so, may we start with Lal Dead, your recommendation to Shani. Um, not an awful lot is factually known about who Lal Dead was, or indeed even what her name was. But the two things we can be, I think, sure of is that she is the first Kashmiri literary figure. And by that, I think, I think what I mean is developing from the languages that came from Sanskrit and, and became what we would now think of as Kashmiri. Yes. Yeah. And also that, are we confident in saying, and we'll come back to the length of time that she, the, the collected poems are, are we at confident in saying this is a female voice? It's very hard to be confident about anything because there's so much about this figure um, is not known to us. And so she emerges out of the past and in a way it's something that draws me to her work because so much of um, our lives today as writers are about us as individuals. My book, my name, my poems, they're there for sale. Um, and Lal did, um, what we know about her is that she was born sometime in the 1300s in the Valley of Kashmir in a Hindu Brahmin family, but she was beloved by Hindus and Muslims. She was called Laleshwari by Hindus and she's called Lala Arifa by Muslims and they both claimed her. And so that in itself is symbolic and important if you know anything about what is happening in the Valley of Kashmir uh, today. But uh, we know she was married um, young at 12 and that she left and she renounced her life as a householder. And this is 700 years ago, this woman wandered out alone singing her poems and she created a form which is called vax and that comes from Sanskrit. Um, the word vak is speech, vakya is sentence and these are these four line uh, what Ranjit Hoskote, who, whose book I'm drawing from heavily because I'm not an expert, <laughs> Ranjit is, um, and these four line utterances that she sang they existed for 400 years before they were written down in any kind of way. So they were in a collective memory and it's sure that additions were made in that time. And um, Ranjit actually uses the word con contributory lineage, uh, so much so that what happens is to even debate whether this is hers or was this person, just to say this person is emerging out of the past with these words, and these words have reached us somehow. And, and I think with the tradition of oral poetry, um, we can understand that it is this sense of collective and that something about it is magical and strong and that it survives. When you say uh, 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 there is resonance with both Hindu and Muslim community. Uh, 
we should say that that, that resonance is absolute all the way down to today. Laldead's work appears in popular song now, and so when, when we have this... Sorry, what's the lineage line of Rajin? Did you say there was a, a shared lineage, or what was the word for the... The contributory. Contribu yeah. It's sort of like, it's a bit like Homer, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Both in terms of scale and, and, and influence. Um, can you say something about what the Vax are? Because they're, they're quite short. Mm -hmm. They are uh, aphoristic. They're parables, proverbs. Yeah. And, and could you say something about the poetic form? So I don't read Kashmiri, and I've read only the translations. Uh, the form is basically four lines with four stresses. And to me, they were appealing because they seemed very direct, and they seemed quite simple. And I'll read a few so you, you understand what I'm talking about. But they're also full of um, a kind of wisdom, and they also surprise you by suddenly moving in a different direction at the end. Um, so she was a, a trained, I mean, she had, she was, a, she was a mystic. She had trained in sort of Kashmiri Shaivism and Tantra, and she was a, a yogini. So she was very much invested in the body, the breath, but I think the sort of integral key idea of this particular Shaivism is that they saw the world um, as in a completely non-dual way. So there was no difference between I and this, I am this. There's no difference between self and world. There's no difference between self and God. We are all one. And the way that you are one is by tapping into this sort of pulse of the universe and transforming your consciousness. So it's very much to do with transformation of self. So there is this sense of epiphany, this sort of sudden directive, this um, charge. And um, so, the, but, but she's also quite funny and caustic. She criticizes um, the over-ritualization of priests and think, people thinking that, oh, you're going to go to this path of enlightenment in this way, but look at the life that you're leading. So she's, she's playing this role of um, being the outsider and creating her own path, but also judging the society. And she lived through a very turbulent time in Kashmir. What was going on? Well, uh, it was invaded by a Tatar uh, chieftain, uh, the, uh, Kashmir was, and that was the time when the last Hindu king of Kashmir, that was his downfall, and then it was the slow sort of beginning of, um, you know, a Ladakhi prince came, and then there was the, you know, it became a predominantly Muslim-ruled uh, um, state, which it continues. Can I, can I just ask you about the... the I wanted to say sacred, but I think I mean religious aspect of this. She's regarded and referred to as a, as a saint, mm -hmm. although she is gloriously non-sectarian. She seems almost to be a, a, a secular spiritualist. Is that, is that fair? Yeah. She did not have apostles, disciples. She did not have a school. She did not... She did not um, engage in any of that. She was really somebody who was striking her own path. And she probably was illiterate. I would imagine that she, because ne she never wrote down these poems. They were spoken. And, and the first written recording is what, some 200? 400 200. years later. And so it's kind of a relay. Uh, they are spoken for 400 years. And then uh, scribes, uh, you know, begin to write them down. And then by the time we get to the first time they are in print in English, it's in 1901. And at that time, Grierson, uh, this um, sort of, uh, I guess, is he English? Uh, he was Irish. Irish, okay. Who was interested in and wanted to, to collect um, her sayings. He had to find it by um, asking uh, you know, a pundit, and then he had to go to another one. And in the shrine, they found this man who had memorized and who, who just recited 109 of them. And that's how then they were written down, and then various translations up until the point of this book, I Lala, which is um, published by Penguin and translated by Ranjit, who 
is Kashmir, you know, Kashmiri and who spent 20 years with these, with, with, these, uh, with these poems, these utterances. And you are of... I always refer to you as a Welsh writer. Thank you. Nobody um, else does. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so pleased to be identified as such. We haven't got many, and half of them are in the room here today, so we're claiming... No. But did you come to her through <coughs> her being widely known and throughout the whole of India, or did you come to her through the English translation, or how did you find her? I, I mean, she, you know, I've, 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 I've met her in anthologies of sort of say, um, I suppose because there's a very large tradition in India of these poet saint wanderers uh, all over the country and really uh, very revolutionary when you think that they were sort of in some ways renouncing, but they were also against uh, societal structures and mainstream, very top-down heavy Hindu, um, you know, which let's say, has resonance now. <laughs> yeah. um, but they were also creating a sort of direct line to the divine, and they were sort of trying to remove the priests who were controlling and just saying, look, my relationship is with God, and I want to be able to speak to God. And language comes in because normally they, it would be Sanskrit, or, you know, the high language. And then you have sort of these traditions of bhakti or the devotional movement whereby they start to use Tamil and Telugu and Kashmiri. And essentially it's saying, I want to use the vernacular that people around can listen and understand. And we need to have direct access to this illumination or God or divinity or whatever you want to call it. We don't need a middleman of the priest. Um, Mena, had you ever come across her? No, no, but I have read now um, for tonight, uh, and some of the work is really stunning. And I'm, uh, I'm amazed that that she hasn't been discovered. Of course, there have been uh, English translations now in American d edition. I realise this is a, a, a maybe impossible to answer question, but how unusual is it for a 12-year-old? I think you said 12 or 13-year-old, to walk away from a marriage at that time. And how unusual is it for, um, for someone to be... Whilst you say there are, there's a tradition of poets, very few of them have been taken up the way she has, it seems to me. There have been over the centuries, but I think what was interesting about her is that none of her male sort of predecessors or co contemporaries actually renounced. So they were scholars, they might have been thinkers, but they remained householders. And so she, you know, she just left the marriage and that's still considered pretty radical in some places yeah. uh, today. So at that time, 700 years ago, to sort of just renounce the world. But there is a tradition of renunciation in India, you know, the fourth stages of man. You're supposed to leave and go into the forest, the sannyasin. But it didn't always happen. And so I think she was quite unique in that, and that she was somebody who was um, a little bit alone and I was thinking of that when I was reading your book because of course it's in a different way to decide to be alone is one thing and to not be sort of to be shunned is, is, is another okay yeah. what are the what are these vats sound like okay I'll, I'll read a few um, so this is one I wore myself out looking for myself. No one could have worked harder to break the code. I lost myself in myself and found a wine cellar. Nectar, I tell you, there were jars and jars of the good stuff and no one to drink it. I'll read it, I'll read it again because I think it's nice to hear it again. I wore myself out looking for myself no one could have worked harder to break the code. I lost myself in myself and found a wine cellar. Nectar, I tell you, there were jars and jars of the good stuff and no one to drink it. Should I read, should I read a few more? Yeah, please. <laughs> okay. I trapped my breath in the bellows of my throat. 
a lamp blazed up inside, showed me who I really was. I crossed the darkness holding fast to that lamp, scattering its light seeds around me as I went. I trapped my breath in the bellows of my throat. A lamp blazed up inside, showed me who I really was. I crossed the darkness holding fast to that lamp, scattering its light seeds around me as I went. What the books taught me, I have practiced. What they didn't teach me, I've taught myself. I've gone into the forest and wrestled with the lion. I didn't get this far by teaching one thing and doing another. So there's a little bit of a in that one. <laughs> okay. Some who have closed their eyes are wide awake. Some who look out at the world are fast asleep. Some who bathe in sacred pools remain dirty. Some are at home in the world, but keep their hands clean. I mean, it, it, it's... She's, she's trenchant, isn't she? Actually. Yeah. I mean, there are... There's, whilst there are sort of, sort of ruminative bits of that, she's also quite critical and aggressive at times. Yeah, yeah she's really... Um, and, and, and again, these are translations, perhaps there are other translations that are, are different, but there is something um, about, I think there's a couple of things, there's sort of a judgment of, of the world and, and trying to find one's own relationship to it, and there's also, I think there's something epiphanic about it, because so much of our, it's about self-knowledge, you know, it's about knowing oneself in order to then feel that there's no difference between self and the world and I you know Peter you're saying you're so ashamed and everything but honestly I've come to her quite late and I feel why have I not known this poet all my life in fact you know it's only been it, during the lockdown was when I was reading her a lot and it was a time when we were feeling particularly closed in and somehow reading these poems it just it was this reminder that we have to connect and we have to collapse this boundary between inner and outer. And, you know, it was so um, fraught at that time because so much danger was perceived towards the inside. And, and here was this voice from 700 years ago, you know. It's such incredibly Sufi? Well, yeah, um, so... Uh, she, uh, again, her traditions was, was this uh, Kashmiri Shaivism, but a lot of Sufis, uh, uh, people uh, and believers claim her because of mainly the act of renunciation, but also the sense of the direct with the divine. So there is a lot of, um, you, you know, there, but there was also a, a, a very famous poet, Kabir, uh, who was claimed by Hindus and Muslims, and there's a story, a beautiful story, who knows if it's true that when he died, the Hindus and Muslims were fighting for his body. The Muslims wanted to bury him, and the Hindus wanted to cremate him. But when they removed the shroud, there was only a heap of fresh flowers. And I think in that way, it's nice to think of poets as being universal and above time and above nation and above religion because they are speaking to something quite universal that all of us can, can engage with. I love that. Thank you very much indeed. Um, Mena, uh, whilst I, I'm, I'm now slightly relieved of my shame about Lal Dead, my shame about Alina Phillips is almost absolute. This is a woman who has been alive and working brilliantly in my recent professional lifetime and is a giant in the Welsh language. Um, part of her achievement is to have uniquely won the Bardic crown at the National Eisteddfod twice. Now, could you for 
for people who are not as familiar as, as, as we may be with the uh, principles of this competition, just lay out why this is such a big deal. Um, well, I think you'll have to go back to uh, early history, Welsh Bardic tradition, and uh, from the 6th century onwards, there's been an unbroken tradition. And by the 20th century, the main um, way of securing the language um, of the poets um, after they were killed by the, you know, the, when they were poets of the princes and, and so forth, um, the Eisteddler became the kind of institution whereby if you wanted to uh, get on and to be a poet, you would compete in the National Eisteddfod and the two main events were the crown and the chair. And um, that's true even to this day, that people um, compete for that. There are two ways of being a poet. I uh, wanted to produce books rather than compete. But anyway, Leonard Phillips um, competed uh, several times before she won. But in 1967, uh, when she was around 50 years of age, she won the competition, the crown. And there was celebration, jubilation. A woman has won the crown. It was a big deal. And I remember being a 15-year-old on this Deadwood field, feeling very excited. I was trying to dabble with writing myself at that time. And uh, she was crowned. But then uh, a few weeks later, uh, the jubilation, the, the excitement uh, dampened somewhat. And people started to say, oh, yes, but... She didn't write it. It must have been a male poet. In fact, two male poets were cited. The first one had been dead 15 years before she won. So, you know, that didn't... So why would she wait all that time before competing? We, with... we, sh we should say that you have to enter. Under a pseudonym. Um, so... Uh, Nobody knows who um, enters. I should have said that. That's really part of, of the competition, the, um, the deal, as it were. And yes, she not only won, uh, but she won. She came runner-up uh, runner to herself <laughs> on a, a long road on Edith Piaf. And in fact, the three poets, uh, one of them had never heard of Edith Piaf, but Lina, Lina Phyllis was a friend of Edith Piaf and was a bit of a, a hanger-on in Paris in the 30s. Um, anyway, the, the, the reason why they doubted her having won the crown at that time was that she wrote about the three main religions, about uh, Allah, she wrote about Christianity and also Confucius. And they just couldn't square the fact that a woman, and a woman hadn't been to university, was unmarried, uh, didn't have a schoolmaster or a husband at her side, that this woman could win on such a magnificent uh, poem. And it is, and it's very dense. Uh, and the, the three judges admitted that they didn't understand everything, but they understand enough to award her the crown. But all these rumours started circulating, and, and also criticism. The title of uh, the competition that year was, was Corlanai Folds, and she had written about religious folds. She hadn't written about sheep. And the one who came third, um, the people even wrote and said, why didn't they award it to the one who came third? He had written something solid, flannel, not something flimsy, colourful. And, and so uh, these were the kinds of things that were thrown at her. And then she uh, took all of this um, and, and didn't compete for, for many years. But then in 1983... She had the gall, some would say, to compete again and win. And this time, it was such a wonderful poem because it's about the Malvinas. And, and she was a dramatist. She was a playwright, 
they made out that she'd never written anything, but she had been with the BBC writing scripts with eminent scriptwriters. Um, she wrote songs, and, and this poem about the Malvinas is just a brilliant depiction of uh, a lad, a Welsh lad, uh, from well fighting for the British Army coming face to face with an Argentor, an Argentinian of Patagonian descent, both speaking Welsh and both coming face to face uh, in a hospital, um, both maimed, but both speaking the Welsh language. So it, it was such a, a wonderful poem, and it was, um, in fact, it, it could have been a play as well. And, and again, she was awarded... Um, outright as, as being the winner and after she won the second time the main critic in Wales, you've got to think of the Bardic, um, Bardic tradition, the gang as it was a kind of uh, US Supreme Court that's a very uh, extreme analogy I know, things have changed since then but they kind of preside over what's acceptable or not and this main critic um, who was like an arch druid wrote um, to the Welsh language weekly newspaper and said it's time for you to send in your uh, or poetry for the next Stadford, but please, will you make sure this time that you and you alone are the uh, author of what you sent in mm -hmm. and not as what happened last year. He more or less uh, kind of didn't name her, but everybody knew. Uh, what uh, he was trying to say and everybody was in uproar because the winner of the chair said I wrote mine somebody who well one of the pros say you know name name uh, the person um, and of course she just retreated she escaped to stay with her niece in Dorchester and um, uh, because you had uh, you had journalists on, on her doorstep saying, you know, what are you going to say to this? And she did go um, to seek um, uh, advice from a solicitor, but, but because she hadn't been named, they couldn't do anything about it. So is this, is this solely institutionalised sexism, or is there woven into that, and I suppose essentially just an extension of it, the fact that she was never part of the literary establishment yes. and was an outsider who had shown them up. Because I understand that. My, my cousin Emir, who, yes, like you, is a won. very great poet, says... I was judge when he won. <laughs> <laughs> Best day our family has ever had, <laughs> got to say. Um, says that that poem particularly is not only so deserving, but actually one of the, the greatest things ever written. Yes, I think so. And why were they so frightened of her? They were frightened of her because she was an outsider. She, um, she was a bit of a bohemian. She uh, spent a lot of time in uh, travelling and in Paris. She met Picasso. Is, is, the, Picasso, is the Guernica story true? Um, well, again, this is the thing about Elinette, is that she was a very colourful character. And some things you can't pin down. I think she tells a good story. Well, will, you, will you just tell us the, the best version of Picasso showing her the painting? Oh, yes. Well, she met him one afternoon and she saw the ugly woman and said, I don't like that. And uh, there were doves flying above. Is that true? And, and apparently she saw Guernica while the paint was still wet. Guernica, yes, yes. But... Again, uh, there are many things that, about Lynette that I think she um, well, probably had a, had a wild imagination, but that doesn't um, dis disprove that she wrote everything, because I know, because I believe the myth. I was 15 years of age, and then I heard, no, she hadn't written it, and I believed it for years and years, for decades, until um, after she died, they wanted to uh, have a tribute evening to her in her little community in Kenarth. 
and they couldn't find anyone to read her poetry, and so I agreed to do so. And after I did, her niece, who had inherited everything after her, um, uh, sent me an email and said, would you like to come down to see what she's left behind. I have lots of her stuff, but I, I don't speak Welsh. So I went down, and there was this big box, and there was an oratorio, there was a musical she wanted to be see to Broadway to, to take it on. She had poems, she had so many long poems in her own handwriting, and I still haven't come to terms with trying to bring out a book of poetry of hers. You know, the biography took uh, a Lot of time. What, what's her, what was her work about Princess Nest? Um, that, that was um, again on Princess Nest, uh, and, and that's in English. I should have said that she wrote in Welsh and English, uh, and, and they're both good. In fact, I brought out a novel of hers two years ago, Kavrinache uh, Secrets, which she said would not be published during her lifetime because it's about her and I published the Welsh version uh, because so many of her friends had told me, oh, I have a copy, and somebody else said, yes, yeah, she gave me a copy, but said, don't show it to anybody. So I decided that I would publish it because one day somebody would publish it, and I thought it might redeem her or might, might win her more support. But even after bringing out a Welsh language version, absolute optimist, which she believed uh, that um, to be the way she lived. After bringing out the English version, which was launched in Washington, she had great friends in America. Um, still, there are some doubters. <laughs> there are still some who say, I think I know now who wrote them. Yeah. Can, can I ask you, this is a slightly cheeky question, because I completely understand the motivation behind wanting to bring her out into the light and find her more readers. But she did write a memoir of her own called Reluctant Redhead, which tells you almost nothing about herself. I know. To, to, it's one of the great acts of concealment in autobiography. I know. I know. That, that, uh, that's another reason for doing the biography. Uh, she brought out uh, a very... Um, superficial, silly, actually. Um, uh, by, well, it, but it was on tape to a friend in America, and she wrote that in her 90s. And um, she tried to avoid all the criticism, as if she couldn't face um, challenging them, even. And who could blame her in her 90s? She preferred just to. Um, to shut the door. She said somewhere, I prefer to shut the door on any hurt or any pain that I've suffered. Can, can I ask you one last question before asking you to, to read some of her work? Um, and I think it, it, it's, it, it's about her and about you. What is your... I, I mentioned the beautiful bilingual edition of A Perfect Blemish where the English-language version of your Welsh-language poetry has been translated not by you, but by someone else. How do you feel about her quite ambivalent life in, as an international writer in the English language and her private but then competition so public, professional life as a writer. How, how, do, how did she and how do you square that linguistic duality? Um, I'm not sure. I think we live with our contradictions. Um, but I, I embrace both languages. Um, I, I shouldn't have been... Perhaps I should have said that although uh, I mentioned that the Eisteddfod can be quite conservative as it was during the 60s and 70s. Having said that, as adjudicator about six times the crown, uh, things have changed. Um, but of course, I, um, I had to face uh, some criticism of, of um, bringing out my work in English, but I think that's 
I think that's gone now. I think we are in a, a far better position um, of being able to bring out working Welsh, surely in English, as people like, well, Manon Stefan Ross has just won the Carnegie, or the, or the book she wrote in Welsh the, uh, originally. There are others like um, uh, Carrie Lewis, Fleur David, and others who bring out working Welsh and in English. I suppose uh, poetry in the past, uh, I, I've enjoyed the act of, of seeing both languages because I was brought up in Swansea Valley where they spoke Welsh and English, you know, the same time almost. Can, can I just on that point with her? She wasn't a, a domestic Cymraic speaker, was she? She didn't speak she Welsh at home. It wasn't her, her home language. She, she learned. Lena uh, uh, Phillips, no, she was, she was Welsh, but she, um, she came from a family... Uh, a very poor family. They're all women there. Um, her father, she said, was killed in the First World War, but on, on her, you know, birth certificate there was a blank. And, and, and her mother, um, likewise, um, you know, her mother didn't marry. Her grandmother said that her grandfather had died crossing to a Patagonia. There's no, you know, there's no evidence Her grandmother of that. was a huge encourager, wasn't, wasn't she? I mean, the, the oh, yes. The go-girl. Yes, yes, definitely. Fantastic. And there was nothing that she could not do when she was, um, well, she was brave. And I, I've just been glad that I've been able to um, rewrite the story because for years I kept a kind of arm's length from her thinking... Oh yes, she's the imposter, she's the fake, the fraud. And then, you know, to, to discover the truth and reread her work uh, has been, you know, really amazing for me. Can we hear what she sounds like? Okay. Um, I'd go first of all for the first um, book, um, the first poem that she won the crown for. Um, I did say that Edith Piaf was, came runner-up, but this is just part of uh, the beginning, which is writing about Allah, you can imagine, in Welsh, writing about that. Here, in the folds of the East, the imam is on his travels under idle palm trees, his respectable gown licking the threshold of poor people's tents. Where will you go, Mohammed, grandson of Abdul, to the childless widow who lives beyond the orangery? When the religious knives were like hailstones in the year of plunder, his father died, his tongue loose like a tired camel. Before pulling a son from the womb and placing him on the fleece of the sacrificial sheep from the holy day of El Kabir, before the witch-like midwife throws the traditional salt to chase away the spirits from the birthing room. In the beginning, Allah created man from a blood clot. And there is a little criticism, I'm glad she didn't write it now, uh, criticism of all the religions. Um, then she goes to, I'll uh, go straight to uh, China, Chu uh, Chin Chow, as old as sin, his two-pointed beard brushing his knees, his hair plate on his hump lying like a dead snake. And then I'll go to uh, my favourite uh, long uh, poem, which is about the Falklands, about Malvinas, as she calls it, and as we should call it, perhaps, bonds, knots, ties. And, of course, in 1865, the Mimosa took so many Welsh people uh, from uh, Wales, hoping for better life. Slowly, slowly moved the Mimosa towards the heaven of Patagonia, a voyage of vomit and plague. Loving a daughter in their adversity, abandoning the golden tresses to the wastes of ocean, and the sea closing around her. The heart is knotted in grief for the fairness amid seaweed. Losing her was losing the sight of one's eye. Koshi he, I've Koshi Popeth. 
churning in a wilderness, his pickaxe bouncing uncaringly off the face of parched earth, aching for a patch of the green grass of tomorrows and the day and eternity of nothingness. And then she talks about the sun of pant glass, Arabane Brecheniog, Shank, Mount Kaki, a young lad clad in khaki, his toy gun grown real, lured by promises of joy times roving the world, his wallet bulging, abandoning the plough and harrow to a rusty death, to take up shooting and stabbing with bayonet. And she goes on, Sir Galahad, beast of prey, is waiting, mouth ajar, like the jaws of a whale, tanks sinking dutifully into her belly, hoary guns bristling on the nape of her neck, the warring pride of her ilk on the ocean as she thrusts anchor before the storm. And then both come together, the who is he who sees but blackness in a hospital ward in the shed in San Carlos, a lad whose every day is now a one night. Britain and Argentina, homes of compatriots, are carrying the indelible mark of Cain. The one-armed greeting the blind, and a bond is forged despite two nations in conflict, Celts with warm blood of belonging coursing through veins, sharing the legacy of an ancient tongue, two souls apart, yet of common, common heritage. And she ends, Akulum Olad Brai, the definitive fragile bond for a son deprived of a summer. Thank you, thank you both very much indeed. I, I note that we are, we have ten minutes for questions um, from the audience, uh, either here in the room or, or on Zoom. If you would like to ask anything, do please put up a hand and we'll bring you a microphone which will amplify for everyone in the room your question. I think the first one we've got is, is from the internet. Thank you. Uh, so, a uh, question um, about the uh, book of poetry by Lal Dead uh, that you were reading from Tishani. Yes. Very simple question is, what's the name of it? Yes, the book is called I... Lala, um, and uh, it's uh, published by Penguin Classics, and the translation is by Ranjit Hoskote. So I, comma, Lala, that's the name of the book. Thank you. Uh, question from the back of the room there, please. Uh, this one's for Tishani, too. Um, it seemed to me that the the closest that I could relate the the poems that you read would be perhaps in their sort of crafty humour and their the way they teased out paradoxes between self and the material world mm. uh, would be um, Omar Khayyam and the Rubaiyat. Mm. Um, is is there is there any strain of the tradition that goes from um, Persia to Kashmir? In fact, um, the first mention we get of Laldid is a few hundred years after she was around, I think. Um, and it was in, in, Persian, in Persian chronicles. So they mention her first. Even though in the 15th and 16th centuries, Kashmiri historians were writing, she's not mentioned because they were writing about political alliances and kings and that stuff. But she comes up the first time in a Persian chronicle. So it was a terrifically um, syncretic and rich um, sort of imagination of this, you know, Tantra, Kashmiri Shaivism, then you have uh, Islam, you have Persia, you have, I mean, it's so many um, ideologies, so many um, um, ways of thinking. And that's why I think they sort of, people find different uh, 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 leads into her, her poems. And it's also barely distinguished uh, a barely um, apparent 
uh, heresy as well in, in those pithy four-line quatrains, isn't yeah. there? They seem to share that. Too. Yeah. Well, I think, um, and I, I thought this when I was reading Mena's book as well, um, that maybe some form of criticism comes easily to poets, <laughs> and that we're sensitive creatures. And in a way, um, you know, I think Lala's was sort of about the society around, and similarly with Lunard, I think the sense of the uh, her criticism uh, is quite funny also, and, and maybe it's sort of to protect the self, to kind of use humor, uh, even though you sense the hurt. Um, but yeah, I think that uh, that perhaps is um, maybe part of the poet's role. She, she was really close to PF, wasn't she? But she was incredibly um, unenthusiastic about about the more famous man whose birthday she shared. Oh, yes. Mm. Yeah. Yes, she shared the birthday with Dylan Thomas. She had 27th, uh, born, born uh, 20, uh, 1914. And uh, yes, she, she thought him a scrounger. She didn't take <laughs> much to him. But she knew them all, Augustus John and uh, the, the gang in London, and Dewey Emrys, the, the, uh, another very dodgy character who some people thought had given her the poem that mm. she won 15 years after he died. Um, yeah, they, they all kind of congregated because she went to London and like, uh, um, she, was, she was very, um, she, she went everywhere. She, she, she traveled a great deal. She was yeah. a wanderer, yeah. you know, not a mystic, but a mysterious. <laughs> mysterious. Um, yeah, they were both wanderers. And, and the other thing I was thinking of is how they both found a sort of sanctuary in language and in the poems and that sense of being quite alone, yes. but the yes. poem then carries yeah. all, yeah. you know, these ideas of belonging yeah. and the conflict, the yes. contradictions, all she, of it. Um, well, Lena did say that she felt that she didn't have a group of people who she could discuss things with. And I, I felt really sad reading that because um, a lot of Welsh poetry, especially um, a special kind of poetry, strict meter poetry, depends on people discussing with one another and, and pointing out um, mistakes and, um, and flaws. So she didn't have that. But having said that, she, she was single-minded in her um, vision of the world. Would anybody else like to ask a question in the room? Or may I? Can, 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 I, can I just ask you to pick up that point about strict meat to, to poetry? Because this is not only a sort of an open invitation to write a poem on a theme. The prescriptions and the, the rigours of competition poetry mm. are quite extreme. Now, you choose not to go down that line, partly because I think you have a much more... Um, uh, revolutionary and disrespectful attitude towards <laughs> strictness of form generally. Yeah. Um, oh, I can do it. I, I just wrote. Just to, chose not to. Yeah, I just wrote a stanza. I just wrote an Englin for our vice chancellor, who retired last week. So I did write one, but it's not my preferred way of writing. It's strict meter, whereby. Um, you have to alliterate, um, you have to rhyme. For example, um, I'm thinking of two Morris. My, my, uh, my love was a plover, wonderful things her wings were. You can see wonderful things her wings were. My love was a plover, you know, you've got an internal rhyme. So you've got all these things to um, contend with, as well as the What would the that accent. be in Welsh? Uh, what would that be in Welsh? Yeah. Um, oh, I don't think you wrote it in Welsh. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. You wrote so that. I thought you were doubly, being doubly clever in translating the performance. Oh, you could say in England, that's in English. You, you see, right. England, you've got an NGL, and you've got it being repeated English. Um, is silly, is sullen, I'm just making it up now. Um, is foolish. Um, and. Um, but uh, I, my, my point is that the, this is a phenomenally demanding form, isn't it? It is. What Lena did was use the form, but it was free verse in it. And uh, the second crown she won, 1983, 
um, she, for the Crown, decided, because they asked it for it to be in metric form, which meant that she then, in a way, tricked um, the whole idea of strict meter by making it free, but using end, end um, rhymes and end words. Um, and so, in a way, she created a new form. They didn't like that either. They thought she was making fun of them. Well, perhaps and, she was. And yet they still go for the prize. Yes, but they didn't know. It was, pseudo, it was a pseudo uh, name. And so the three judges thought the last that um, because Malvina's war had just been in 1983 and so it was so current, it was so poignant, it was such a marvellous um, long road that yes, she won. And, um, but some thought she was also uh, trying to um, perhaps criticise in some way the whole es essence of, of strict meter. Which she was, Perhaps. but they didn't like it. But actually, <laughs> it was groundbreaking. And actually, it was and groundbreaking, and, 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 but nobody's done it since. Um, uh, and I don't know whether it's because of fear. Um, they'd be alienated, um, uh, or, or what. But nobody's t attempted that uh, after that. Um, I, prefer, I prefer the long line and my influences are more from American poetry and, uh, and European poetry than, than Welsh poetry, which puts me at odds as well with the Welsh tradition. Yeah. Thank you. Can I just ask, do you have any more of Valdez that you would read to us as a final, final word today? If you could just read us a couple and then we would be bang on time. I didn't believe in it for a moment, but I gulped down the wine of my own voice. And then I wrestled with the darkness inside me, knocked it down, clawed at it, ripped it to shreds. I didn't believe in it for a moment, but I gulped down the wine of my own voice. And then I wrestled with the darkness inside me, knocked it down, clawed at it, ripped it to shreds. Don't think I did all this to get famous. I never cared for the good things of life. I always ate sensibly. I knew hunger well and sorrow and God. Don't think I did all this to get famous. I never cared for the good things of life. I always ate sensibly. I knew hunger well and sorrow and God. Um, thank you both very much indeed. Thank you in the room. Thank you on Zoom. Um, there are copies of these books at the back of the room. Please read them, please share them, and thank you very much for introducing us to these two new voices. Yep.